Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Two-Footed Podcast is brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block, allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. So go to libertyshield.com right now, use the code EPL25 and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router and any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device and you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com, EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homework company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy, Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out A Tad Predictable, hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL Roundtable, hosted by Kevin DeVries, on its own EPL Roundtable feed. So just search EPL Roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now, on with the show. good boys and girls two-footed podcast today 
is Monday. It is the 19th of February. We are rolling through 2024. And the weather has genuinely picked up. I I believe spring is upon us, but we'll wait and see. Uh, At the weekend, we had nine games in the Premier League. We have one tonight. We'll get to that. Brentford won Liverpool four in the first game of the weekend, the 12.30 kickoff. This went far better than most Liverpool fans expected in terms of the result, but came at a cost. Darwin Nunes, Alexis McAllister, Mohamed Salah put Liverpool into a 3-0 lead. Ivan Tony did pull one back for Brentford, but Cody Gakbo made it 4-1 on 86 minutes. Liverpool playing some lovely agricultural football. Three of their goals coming from speculative long balls. This is what they need to do. This is the recipe against teams like Brentford, who defend really well in a deep block. Catch them, A, on the counter, as they did on the first goal, and B, with direct football that they're not expecting from you. There was a case for Brentford to have a penalty. In my opinion, it was a penalty. Andy Robertson fouled Ivan Tony. However, Liverpool should have had two penalties. Diogo Jota and Luis Diaz both fouled in the penalty area. Both should have been given. Uh, We move on. Burnley nil, Arsenal five. Martin Odegaard on four minutes. Really good work by Martinelli. Lovely touch. Brilliant strike by Odegaard. Tremendous goal. 41 minutes in, Leandro Trossard is brought down in the penalty area. A little bit soft, but definitely contact. No issue with the penalty being given. I do take issue with James Trafford's attempt to save the penalty. Saka doesn't strike it well at all, and Trafford doesn't manage to keep it out. 47 minutes, Saka makes it three. I don't know what Trafford is doing. It's a good strike, but it's right over your head. It's right over your head. You should be saving that. Trossard made it four on 66. Burnley's defense was all over the place. We had more shambolic defending on 78 minutes as Kai Havertz made it five. And that is another impressive win for Arsenal following on from last week's 6-0. We'll see if they can sustain this level. They haven't scored goals at this level all season. Both teams they played very, very poor in gifting them goals. We'll see how this works out. Their next game will be against Newcastle in next Premier League game. And in the league at the weekend, Newcastle 2, Bournemouth 2. Bournemouth should have been out of sight in the first half. Dominic Solanke missed two great chances. Newcastle were all over the place. Solanke put Bournemouth ahead on 51. Martin Dubravka, the ball was played back to him. He slipped. Solanke snuck in and scored. Anthony Gordon made it 1-1 from the penalty spot on 58 minutes. Absolutely no-brainer penalty. Definitely a foul. So no issues there. Antoine Semenyo on 69 minutes with a very, very nice finish. Took the shot early from the angle. Caught Dubravka unprepared and put Bournemouth ahead. But Matt Ritchie, Matt Ritchie, who kind of an afterthought at Newcastle for quite a while, manages to get the equaliser on 92 minutes. Gorgeous ball from Gamerish. Richie on the end of it, selflessly, tries to head it to a teammate. It hits Lewis Cook. 
It's almost an own goal. Neto somehow keeps it out, but it falls to Matt Ritchie and he hammers home 2-2. Fulham 1, Aston Villa 2. Fulham just a mess defensively on the first goal. They're throwing in their own half. Players not prepared. Ball chucked in. Ramsey nicks it. Ball bobbles to Ollie Watkins and he finishes really well. Villa missed two, three good chances in the first half. Leon Bailey causing all manner of problems for for Fulham. I thought Yuri Thielemans playing between the lines got himself into good positions. He should have scored. Watkins should have scored. Villa finally got their second goal on 56 minutes. Again, it's Watkins. It's a really, really well-taken goal. Ricardo Moniz pulled one back on 63 after good work down the left by Anthony Robinson. But this was all Villa. Statistically, Fulham had more shots and more shots on target, but there's no way you came away from that game thinking that Villa weren't comfortably the better team on the day. Now, <clears throat> Emmy Martinez did have to make one very, very good 1v1 save against the Dama Traore, who looks to have slimmed down quite substantially. Um, but Villa were absolutely good value for their win. Nottingham Forest 2, West Ham 1. Teo Awanii on the stroke of half time. Lovely ball into him. Great first touch. Great finish. 1 0 to Forest at the break. Calvin Phillips. I, I don't even know where to begin. The first yellow card is utterly brainless. He gets involved. This, he wins a free kick. Rather than take the free kick, he gets involved with the Forest players, shoves the man to the ground, gets a yellow card, and within minutes, on a Forest counter-attack, he comes across, his foot is raised, he catches Gibbs White. There's no questions a second yellow card, and off he goes. Forrest were denied a stonewall penalty in this game. Absolutely stonewall penalty. No question Nico Williams was brought down. His foot was stood on. It should have been given. It wasn't given. But Forrest got their second goal. Callum Hudson-Odoi in stoppage time. Rounding off a very, very good afternoon for Forrest. A good win. Well deserved. Tottenham won. Wolves 2. This was a really good game. Tottenham had all of the ball. But Wolves were just devastating on the counter. Pedro Neto might be the best counter-attacking weapon anywhere in Europe. He is just a sensation. Uh, Wolves went one up on 42 minutes through Zhao Gomes. <clears throat> they could have scored just beforehand. Um, Huang missed a sitter. But they work another opportunity. They get a corner. Sarabia's delivery. Jeff Gomes is five foot eight, maybe five nine. He gets a completely free header, eight yards out. I don't know how that happens, but he directs it brilliantly. It's a really good goal. Just after the break, Dejan Kulisevsky equalized for Spurs. It's a wonderful bit of skill. Ball is ping-ponging around. Falls to Kulisevsky. Two brilliant touches taken past two men. And as the keeper moves to set himself, it's a quick toe poke through the keeper's legs. And it's 1-1. <clears throat> and you would have backed Spurs to win at that point. But Wolves were just, like I say, devastating on the counter. 
Neto breaks down the left off a Spurs set piece. Sorry, breaks down the right off a Spurs set piece. Just runs everybody. Runs Emerson Royale. But it's not just his pace. It's his ability to stop on a dime. Turn back. Play the perfect ball. Joe Gomes strides onto it. Doesn't doesn't break stride at all. First time finish. Whips it by the goalkeeper. No chance for Vicario. And Wolves are back in front. From there, it's all Spurs. But Wolves are still able to cut them open on the counter. Again, it's Neto. He finds Bellegarde. He really, really has to score. Beats the first man. Needs to shoot, but wants it on his left, on, on his right foot. So takes a kind of awkward way round the ball. Allows Emerson Royal to come in and make the block. You felt like Spurs were going to get an equaliser. There was going to be a big chance. It was all about who it fell to. And unfortunately for Spurs, it fell to Ben Davies. A header from no more than four or five yards out, totally free, dead centre of the goal. And it is an absolute shambles. Whatever he was trying to do, it turned out to be a great defensive header. But Wolves get the win. That's the double they've done over Spurs this season. Big, big win for Gary O'Neill's side. Man City won Raheem, Man City won Raheem Sterling won. Man City won Chelsea won in the late game on Saturday. Um, Chelsea's first half display was maybe some of the best football they've played this year. Defensive shape looked excellent. Now, City still had chances. Erling Haaland missed a sitter in the first half. He would miss three in the second half. But Chelsea defended brilliantly. No Thiago Silva, which meant no liability. Gusto, De Sassi, Colwell, Chilwell. Balance, pace, ability on the ball, ability to play high, ability to drop deep. This defense worked really well. Enzo and Caicedo in that first half were tremendous, completely shut down City's midfield. Cole Palmer buzzing between the lines caused so many problems for City. Raheem Sterling and Nicholas Jackson with their pace and running in behind had City's defence all over the place. And special mention to Conor Gallagher, who <coughs> sacrificed himself in this game by, by design, I would imagine. Just went and sat on Rodri and buzzed around him and harassed him and harangued him and didn't allow City to play out through Rodri, which hampered their build-up. Chelsea were excellent in the first half and deservedly went in front through Raheem Sterling on 42 minutes. Good ball played down the line. For some reason, despite the fact that Kanji is in a good position to defend that ball, Kyle Walker comes charging across from right back, gets himself caught in no man's land. The ball is played over to Sterling. Walker sprints back because he's moving so quickly out of desperation to get back. Sterling cuts back inside him really easily and finishes well. Like I said, Haaland would miss three great chances in the second half. He's surprisingly not great in the air for a guy his size. He doesn't score nearly as many headed goals as you would expect him to get, given the size, the strength, the speed, and how good he is at everything else in in terms of his finishing. He's not particularly good in the air. Um, the, the KDB clipped cross to him. I mean, that's that should be a goal all day. 
Uh, but City got their equaliser on 83 minutes. The pressure finally told. I mean, they'd had probably 29 shots by that point. Um, Kyle Walker comes into the back post, shoots kind of wildly. It takes a couple of deflections, bounces back. Rodri steps onto it. As he does so often for City, he gets the big goal to salvage the point. Uh, on to Sunday then, the early kickoff, Sheffield United nil, Brighton 5. Mason Holgate sent off on 13 minutes for the worst tackle you're going to see all season. And what really winds me up is when the free kick was given, Mason Holgate was outraged that a free kick had been given. The ball is at Matoma's feet. Holgate comes across. His right foot catches Matoma above the knee. Above the knee. But you know how wild and out of control you have to be to end up catching somebody above the knee? That's horrendous. The referee gives a yellow card. Holgate can't believe he's been booked. He doesn't understand what's going on. And yet, VAO review, yellow card cancelled, straight red, and Holgate doesn't protest it at all. So he knew what he'd done. He was trying to get away with it. No apology, no remorse for what could have been a potential career ender. Like, genuinely, it is one of the worst tackles you'll ever see. These are the type of tackles we would have seen in the 70s and 80s when things were a little bit less regulated. It is an absolute shocker. Off you go, son. If Sheffield United have any decency, they'll just cancel the loan and send him away. Uh, Buenanote put Brighton one up on 20 minutes. Pascal Gross with the corner to the back post. Lewis Dunk heads across goal. Buenanote puts it into the roof of the net. It bounces down, bounces out, and Sheffield United tried to play on. Uh, some some gang of lads, some gang of lads. Danny Welbeck made it two on 24 minutes. Again, it's Pascal Gross with a clip cross to the back post. Matoma comes in. His shot is saved by Fodderingham. Bounces back to Welbeck, who finishes and makes it 2-0. Sheffield United did have a goal disallowed from there. Um, a little bit of controversy over it. There's a header back across goal. Osborne is offside on the initial header, but it comes off a Brighton player. I assume the ruling is that it wasn't a purposeful touch. Now, what was unusual here is that the referee ruled it out based on the linesman flagging for it. He was told to go and review it and stuck with his on-field review, which we don't see very often. Um, Brighton found the third goal. On 75 minutes, very simple. Matoma squares up his fullback, shifts the ball, swings the cross in, and Jack Robinson sticks a foot out and puts it into his own net. Simon Adingra would make it four, three minutes later. Really, really nice finish. Ball played in. It's at an awkward height, but he manages to swivel and kind of flip the volley and sweep it into the net. Great finish. 85 minutes, Adingra makes it five. Now, this one... I'm not sure if it's a Dingra's goal. He takes the shot. To me, it looks like it's going across the goal and not into the goal. Takes a big deflection, loops up. And Evan, Evan Ferguson gets a touch to it. Now, whether the touch is after it goes over the line, I don't know. But I think that one might end up as an own goal. 
uh, which would be a shame for for Dingra because um, he's a really, really promising young player. Last game of the day, Luton won Manchester United 2. So this is just a weird game of football. Luton had 59% of the ball. Luton had 22 shots. United had 21. It was very open, very end-to-end. No control for United at all in this game. Their first goal is a hopeful punt down the field, which Amari Bell, I think, is the one. I think it was Amari Bell. Yeah, because it was on the left side. Amari Bell, just a horror show. Ball is played over his head. He's turned facing his own goal. Just let it bounce and then head it or let it bounce and boot it into the crowd, or whatever you don't do. Whatever he tried to do, I don't know. But he basically skewed his touch right into the path of Hoysland, who semi-rounds the keeper and lashes into the net. 1-0 United in the first minute. Seven minutes in, United set piece. Ball drops to Garnacho. He takes a shot. Hoysland is trying to get out of the way, is what he's trying to do. And the ball hits his chest and deflects across the goal and in. Gary Neville tried to make out that he meant it. There's not a chance he meant it. Absolutely no way. On 14 minutes, Carlton Morris pulled one back for Luton. Chong takes a shot, takes a big deflection, loops across. And Carlton Morris is just braver than Onana, is what it comes down to. And he pulls one back. Casemiro is booked. And then Casemiro jumps into a tackle on Ross Barkley. It's a, it's as flagrant a yellow card as you're ever going to see. And David Coote bottles the decision. Absolutely bottles the decision. A disgraceful act by the referee. No question that when the report comes out um, from the, the dubious decision, decisions panel or whatever they're called, they're going to say that Casemiro should have been sent off. It was a really poor tackle on Barkley. It might have even been, it genuinely might have even been red card worthy. It's that, it's that poor and that dangerous and doesn't come near the ball. But it was definitely a yellow card. Probably not a red, but definitely a yellow. But he should have been sent off. That should have been a second yellow and away he goes. He's very, very fortunate. Very, very fortunate. And United were quite fortunate from there. Now, they did have a couple of really good counter-attacking opportunities. One where Bruno Fernandes rounds the goalkeeper. I think it's Gabriel Osho makes the block. It's a brilliant tackle. Another where Garnacho gets in, kind of rounds the goalkeeper. The defender gets back. He turns back. He makes a mess of it. But Luton had a couple of decent chances, and then Ross Barkley clips the crossbar with a header. Late on, Luton deserved something from that game, but United won't care. They will take the win. So the league table right now, Liverpool top on 57 points. Then come Arsenal on 55. Manchester City on 53, but they have a game in hand that they will play tomorrow night at home to Brentford. Then a four-point gap to Villa, who are two points clear of Tottenham. Villa... Villa have some injury issues at the moment that's going to make it tough for them to sustain top four and conference league. 
But that win will be hugely confidence-boosting for them the weekend after what's been a fairly poor run for them. Uh, Spurs on 47, United on 44, then a six-point gap to Brighton. Now, you'll remember, I talked about it the other day, people are saying Brighton are having a bad season. They're seventh in the league. They've lost seven games. Only the top five have lost less games than Brighton. People say Brighton's defense is dreadful. They've conceded less goals than everybody bar the top six and Everton. That's less goals than Newcastle United, who had the best defense in the league last season. That's less goals than Chelsea, who play pretty defensive style of football. Less goals than West Ham. Now, hated and abetted by West Ham shipping six last week, but still. West Ham are a David Moyes team. Their goal difference is plus eight. You've only got the top five and Newcastle with a better goal difference. United, by the way, finally have a positive goal difference on the season. Uh, it took them 25 games to get to plus one. Congrats on that. If this is a bad season for Brighton, imagine how terrifying a good season for Brighton would be. This is a season that they came into having lost Caicedo, lost McAllister, lost Levi Colwell. This is a season in which they've been racked by injuries. If we take a look now, the goalkeeping situation is purely down to Deserby. Jason Steele should be playing far, far less, but that's the decision the manager's made, and thus so be it. But in the Premier League, Verbruggen has played 11 and Steele has played 14, which comes with its own problems. Your defence needs to get used to playing with a goalkeeper. They haven't had that chance. Tariq Lamptey has started five games and made five sub-appearances. Igor Julio has made has started 10 games, made four sub-appearances. Adam Webster started eight games, made one sub-appearance. Lewis Dunk has started 21 games. Jan-Paul Van Hecke, who I'm, I'm not sold on at all, has 18 starts and two sub-appearances. So the centre-backs, Dunk and Van Hecke have been fairly solidly there. Dunk is having a bad season. Van Hecke is not great. The starting fullbacks are Joel Veltman and Purvis Stupin. And Joel Veltman started nine games in the league this year. Now, he's been on the bench for eight others. And he's come off the bench in those games, but that still means he's missed eight games. Purvis Stupinen has missed 12 games this season. He's only started 10 times with three sub-appearances. So you're starting left back barely there for most of the season. In midfield, Solly March has only started seven games. He would be the starting right winger. He's only played in seven games. Uh, Billy Gilmore has been fairly consistently there, as has Pascal Gross. But you look at Beliba still settling himself in, only seven starts. Matoma, 15 starts, so that's 10 he's missed, but he came off the bench in four. Adingra, 14 starts, came off the bench in four. Ansu Fati, only two starts this season, came off the bench in 10. Buenanote starting 11 games when he's probably just not quite ready. Jack Hinchelwood starting eight games, again, not ready. Like That's a lot of injury issues in your midfield. Mo Dahoud started only six games. 
was brought in to be the replacement for Alexis. Up front, Joe Pedro has started 12 of 25. Danny Welbeck, 13 of 25. Evan Ferguson, 12 of 25. Julio Enciso, 1 of 25. Now, both Pedro and Ferguson have come off the bench in 11 games, so they've only missed two each. But they still miss games. Danny Welbeck has missed a bunch of games. But Enciso's missed basically the whole season, and I think he'd be starting for them. So you've got him barely there. Stupin's missed two-thirds of the season, or three-fifths of the season. Um, Matoma's missed a chunk of games. Solly March is such a huge loss to them as well. They've been racked by injuries. Like, it's really unfortunate how many injuries they've had across the board. So they've been dealing with all of that, been dealing with the loss of three vital players from last season, been dealing with playing in Europe for the first time, topped their group. They're still in the FA Cup, though. Tough draw away to Wolves. But how is this a bad season? Genuine. Um, They're one point ahead of Newcastle, who are one point ahead of West Ham, who are one point ahead of Wolves and Chelsea, or Chelsea and Wolves. Uh, who both have 35 points. Chelsea are ahead of Wolves on goal difference, plus one against minus one. So neither <coughs> inspiring in that regard, but for Wolves to be level on points with Chelsea is a really good achievement. Um, from Wolves, it's a six-point gap to Fulham. Then it's one point to both Bournemouth and Brentford. Brentford play City. Bournemouth play... Sorry, Bournemouth are three points ahead of Brentford. Bournemouth have 28 points, Brentford have 25. Both of those teams have games in hand. Brentford's a city, Bournemouth's is Luton. Um, So Brentford 25, Forest 24, Palace 24, game in hand tonight against Everton. Luton 20, obviously game in hand against Bournemouth. Everton 19th, 18th, 18th. Big opportunity to get themselves out of the relegation battle tonight, given Palace are in really poor form and Roy Hodgson's currently in hospital. There's no clarity from the club over who the manager is. I assume Ray Lunston will be the uh, caretaker for the night. Below Everton, it's a six-point gap to Burnley and Sheffield United, who I think we can just write off right now. Uh, 13 games to go. They've got 13 points each. Funnily enough, Sheffield United's goal difference is 13 worse than Burnley. Minus 30 for Burnley, which is 14 worse than anyone else in the league. Palace are minus 16. That's the next worst. But Sheffield United, minus 43. 65 goals conceded in 25 games. 65 goals in 25 games. Over two and a half goals a game being conceded while scoring less than one. Now, Burnley are not much better. They've scored exactly one a game, 25, conceded 55. That is shocking. Like I said, the next worst um, is, is considerably better than them. The next worst goals allowed is Luton on 47, but they've scored 34 goals. Then it's Bournemouth on 46, early season hammerings. Uh, but they've scored 33. Forest, 44, but they've scored 32. 
Brentford 43, they've scored 35. Palace, who, like I said, third worst goal difference, 43 goals conceded, same as Brentford, but they've only scored 27. Um, West Ham doing their bit for bad defensive records, 44 goals conceded, only scored 36. And like they're still ninth. Now, they look like a team falling apart. They really do. They've lost three in a row. They haven't won in their last five. They're one point clear of Chelsea and Wolves. Now, they've got a big, big game coming up against Brentford, but their schedule is a little bit favourable over the next three. Brentford home, West Ham, sorry, um, Brentford home, Everton away, Burnley home. They've got to take seven points from that three because then it gets real tough. You go Villa home, Toon away, Spurs home, Wolves away. That's that's a really tough four-game run. So they need to make hay while they can. Chelsea, on the other hand, uh, league games. Brentford away because they don't have a league game this weekend. Um, Well, next weekend, but they don't have a, a league game coming up because they've got the League Cup final, then they've got their FA Cup game. Then they go Brentford home, sorry, Brentford away, Toon home, Arsenal away, Burnley home. I fancy them to give Arsenal a, a decent game. If they play like they did yesterday, I think they can get something at the Emirates. Uh, Wolves, Sheffield United home, that's a favourable one. Toon away will be tough. Fulham home, Bournemouth home. Wouldn't be surprised if, when we get to the 29-game mark, if Wolves are sitting in ninth. Maybe even higher. Maybe even higher. We'll go to break. When we come back, I have a guest. Former Premier League manager. Three-time Premier League winner. Premier League winning captain. It's a good one. I'll see you after this. Right, I'm delighted to be joined on the line by a man who had a great playing career, a successful managerial career, multiple-time Premier League winner, Steve Bruce. Steve, how are you today? Good morning. I'm well, thank you very much. Very, very good. Thank you, yes. So, Steve, where I want to start is I want to start with the playing career. So, obviously, you come through the academy at Gillingham, you move on to Norwich, and then in 1987, you land at Manchester United. And that's where most people will remember you as a player. So you had a very, very successful tenure there, winning multiple Premier League titles, winning Cups, winning the European Cup Winners' Cup. You were part of the first great Alex Ferguson team there, but it took him quite a while to build that team. It didn't happen instantaneously. He's now been gone for nearly 11 years and Manchester United still seem to be attempting to rebuild. Why do you think it is that it's taken so long? Is it is it just the sheer scale of the club that people can't quite grasp or is there something else you think at play there? Well, well there's that for a start. I mean, you don't you don't realize until you're, until you're in the building. Everybody knows that Manchester United is a huge big football club. And some would say, arguably, as big as you get in the world. But and when you when you arrive in the club, you do realise then 
um, of exactly what it is. I mean, where everybody else, I'm going to talk about newspapers because that's what it was back in the day. There's always, always the story about Manchester United. And it's the intensity of the whole thing which engulfs you. And if you're not careful, can overwhelm you. And uh, I've seen it with uh, with players in particular who have been fantastic players on paper anyway and um, and really can't come to terms with the size of what Manchester United is. So I was fortunate that, you know, through arriving maybe at 27 years old and I'd played maybe four, four, 400 times, yeah, even though they were in the lower divisions, for for six of those years at Gillingham, I, I was determined that I was going to take it on and enjoy it and try not to be overwhelmed with it. And uh, and thankfully, I, we, I did okay with it. But I've seen a lot of people just unfortunately fall by the wayside, just not being able to cope with what Manchester United brings. Steve, let me say, you did more than okay with it. You're a three-time Premier League winner. You lifted that trophy for Manchester United, Roy Keane, a noted leader, talks about you as one of the people that taught him how to be a leader. You did more than okay at United. You're a standout player in that club's history. Can you tell me what it was like to play under Alex Ferguson? Because he is, without question, the great manager of the Premier League era. Without question, he was the great manager. And what's it like to play for him? It was absolutely, look, look, he changed my life. In fact, my wife and I bumped into him in a, in a restaurant some six months ago and she went over to him and, and put her arms around him and thanked him that he changed our life. He changed our life by giving me the opportunity. Of course, I had to grasp for it, I had to grasp it, but to play for him for nearly 10 years and be his captain, then that is something which I'll take with me as a as a great great honour because we're talking about one of the the great or, or the greatest manager of all time. I mean, his longevity, what he won, how mm. he done it, it was just mind blowing, and uh, it was a privilege to be part of it. Of course, he was demanding. He demanded stuff off you every single day, and that never ceased in his tenure. His demand to win was incredible, and what happens with a lot of people is once they've had success. You know, the, it's sustaining it. And he was a master at it. You know, he was a master at changing the team when the che- team, team needed changing, when, the, when, it, when you need a new centre forward or you need a new midfield player. He was always never frightened to change. Um, so I always say it was a personal honour to, to, to play for him and to play for such a wonderful, wonderful football club because at the start was always the holy grail that we had to win the Premier League. Mm. And the demand Ball. And the year before we won it, you know, we it, it, it t- taught us a harsh lesson. But we we took the water in a bit, you know. We I know we had injuries. We had to play a ridiculous amount of games in a ridiculous short period of time. But you know, we weren't the same when it really come to the push. We weren't there, and um, I think that benefited it. And we all learned from it the following season when we won it. Yeah, of course. You you almost have to go through those heartbreaks to kind of battle-proof yourself. I mean, as as a Liverpool fan, I remember, you know, going through in 13-14, Liverpool didn't get the job done, stumbled at the last hurdle, 
then under Jurgen Klopp, they finished second in 2018, 2019, and then go on and win the league the next year. And that, it always reminded me of that Manchester United team. You yeah. guys obviously finishing second to Leeds and then the following season just roaring back and going on and winning the league and then going back to back as well, which was very difficult to do. Yeah, back to back, yeah. I mean, look, I think we should have won. We, we could have won a, a treble of... Mm. Um, really, we had a wonderful Blackburn year. The Blackburn year, where where how we didn't win the game against West Ham is beyond me. But you know that's football. We had chance after chance after chance and missed them. You know, um, and also you know we lost the cup final to Everton that year too as well, which was a, a big blow to us all really. Because but then again, the following year, '96, we we won the double again. So we were close to winning three doubles in a row. Um, which gives some idea of how good the team was. I always say the '94 team with the '94 team that I played in was just absolute. It didn't play together very long because by then it were by '95. Sir Alex had started to bring in the young ones and Hughes, Konchelskis, and Ince left. If you remember, um, yeah. So it was it, it was an unbelievable good team. Really, really. For me, a great, great team, you know, Hughes and Cantona and Ince and Keane and Robson, Kanchelskis and Giggs and Sharp and Irwin and Parker and Schmeichel. It was it was an absolute wonderful, wonderful team. And the strength of it always was that there was just no weak link in that team. Like as, a, as an opposition fan, you'd always be looking at United and trying to find, like, where's the weakness? And there was never a weakness in those teams. You guys just had quality players all over the pitch. And you mentioned the summer that Kinchelskis and, and Ince and Hughes were moved on. And people thought, oh, he's lost the plot here. He's won a couple of league titles and now he's making mad changes. But nobody was prepared for what was coming through the academy. Nobody well, had a re realisation that there was like four, five, six players coming through that were going to define English football for the next 15 years. Well, uh, that is the greatness because we certainly didn't see it. We all knew these kids were good. But to come and have, it'll never be done again to have five of them come through from the youth team mm. and go on and dominate like they did um, was quite remarkable, really. Um, and that's where we talk about greatness. You know, we, we talk about the word great too often. That's where you talk about greatness, to see that as a manager, to see, well, we can replace him. We can replace Kachelskis with, we can replace Kachelskis with Beckham. We can re replace Ince with Scholes and, and Nicky Butt. And, and, you know, it was quite remarkable, really, that these lads were shown, but went on with huge, huge success. And that's what I'm saying. When we talk about greatness, them, then big key decisions were ultimately a, a bit like what Klopp's done now as well. I mean, it's difficult for me to say it as a Liverpool, but, you know, mm. the revolution now of the new Liverpool team, we've seen the one that has unfortunately got old, you know, what won the league where Henderson's gone, Firmino and them lot have gone, and they're now integration of the new team and the new players. Uh, that's been fascinating to watch too. For me, the true mark of the greatness of Ferguson, it, it's not even the league titles. Like the 13 league titles is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It, but from 91-92, that season you guys finished second to Leeds, up until he walked out the door in the summer of 2013, 
United never finished below third. And they only finished third three different times. Every other year in that span, their first or second, that level of consistency. And like you, you mentioned it, you guys lost the title by one point to Blackburn. The year after you left, they lost it by one point to Arsenal. Like they were right to the wire every year. That, that you just can't do that now. Even Liverpool and City, you're not seeing them run off runs like that like Liverpool have had a third place finish and a fifth place finish City obviously have been first or second but one year they were 18 points behind Liverpool what you guys were doing was just it's to this day is still unheard of I have to say uh, you're, you're, you're quite right in your judgment of it you know all the stats more than I do the one thing you have to say is that Man City are on I mean Man City have now won six out of seven which is a remarkable achievement under Pep too and then again, we're talking about greatness of Pep and, and what he does and how he does it. But look, it, it is, that's what I'm saying. When, when people have a level of success and they get there, staying at the top is the most difficult thing. It's probably easier getting there. But to sustain it, mm. year, year eight, have the appetite, the desire, the hunger, the work power, the willpower, the strength, everything he had in abundance, in abundance. And he used it all sorts of things like, you know, I've got three envelopes and three names in the envelopes, which I'll open at the end of the season. Who I think will think, oh well, they've, they've done it all and wore it all, and it's been there, wore the t-shirt, and not do enough this year because they think they made it. You know, and we're all looking at each other. Well, who's in the envelope? Of course, there was nobody, nobody's name in the envelope. You know, it was all a bit of psychology at the time, and we thought, well, I hope he's not talking about me. And it just ah, look, it's. It's very difficult, and every conversation I seem to have, I do. It's always about the great man. He was the greatest. He is the greatest. Ah, I can't see it ever being replicated of what he went on to do and achieve. The only one who's got a chance probably is Pep, mm. and uh, but he's only halfway there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and he, he's probably not going to. He's probably not going to stick around that long. So, well, two, two quick ones just to to wrap up on yourself. You spent 24 years as a manager. We haven't seen you in the dugout since you left West Brom. Are we going to see Steve Bruce back in a dugout anytime soon? Is, is it something you still have the passion for? Oh, and I'm, I'm, I certainly have the passion on a Saturday. It's still difficult for me. You know, I've, it's the first time I've had a year off since I, since I started playing uh, in 1976. I've never mm. had a year off. I've had a year off. I'm itching to get back in some capacity. If it's at the cold face, then yes, bring it on. I'm looking to try and do something. Um, I hope I'm not finished. Um, but look, if I am and I don't get any more opportunities, then I can stand back and say, how lucky have I been? I've been so lucky. I've been in it for 45 years, 24 mm. as a month, 20 the player. I couldn't have wished for anything better. I wouldn't change anything but I would like one more crack. So if there is an owner, chairman, CEO, I'd like to think that if they ask me a question about football, I'll be able to answer it. And whether I can be a help to some young manager, uh, an assistant to someone, or in the coalface, I definitely want to try and work again. In what capacity? I'm not too quite sure. Well, the game of football will be better off while there's people like yourself involved in it. That's Thank for you. sure. Steve, last question before I let you go. I've taken up too much of your time already. You never got the call for England. And it was 
bizarre that you never got the call for England, given your level of play and level of consistency. For many years, there were rumours that Steve Bruce was going to play for Ireland. Yep. Your son, Alex, obviously played for both the Republic and Northern Ireland, so you could have done the same. Yep. Did it ever, did it ever come close? It was more close than ever in 94 under Jack Charlton when the, the Irish team were going to the World Cup. And there was this, and, he, and Jack, by this time, had found out that my mother was Irish. And I've told the story many times that he said, come on. I says, but Jack, I'm 34. He says, well, I don't care how old you are. You know, we've got to, if you would join us, that would be great. And of course, I would have, I was close. Uh, well, I did say yes to Jack. You know, my mum's Irish. And, um, and I've loved to have played international footballer for, uh, for Ireland. Unfortunately, that would have classed me as a foreign player. And the and free so foreigner I, rule. The free foreigner rule. So to be far, I mean, look, the reason why we didn't go far in Europe in 94, I'm convinced, was that stupid rule where, I mean, Cantona and Schmeichel were sitting up in the stands when we're taking on the likes of Barcelona, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it hindered us, and I would have been classed as foreign, and it wasn't going to happen with Sir Alex. So that awful decision where, unfortunately, I had to stay English because this rule. Um, so I missed out. I missed out on going. However, what I did do was I went. I went to USA and followed them with Alex. I was in. I was in uh, when they beat the Italians. I was in New York when they beat the Italians one nil. I then went down to, to Florida and watched them play Mexico in the heat. So I went to follow them as a supporter then. Um, but that was the closest I got. Well, it remains a shame from an Irish point of view that we never got you because at that time you were one of the top players in the league. Steve, thank you so much for your time. My uncles, my uncles, Colm and Brendan are lifelong United fans, massive fans of yourself. And if you can wish your son, Alex, who's making his first steps into management, all the best in his career. I'd love you to pass the message on. Thanks so much for your time. No problem. Thank you. Thank you very much. Right, welcome back. So the big news over the weekend in the Premier League sphere, other than the games, obviously, is that Newcastle United have put Dan Ashworth on gardening leave amid his request to leave after being approached by Manchester United. Now, it seems United haven't officially approached Newcastle yet. So Toon have put Ashworth on gardening leave. His gardening leave period takes him up to 2026. So if United really want him, they'll have to wait two years or they will have to pay significant compensation. And the fee Newcastle are are looking for is believed to be close to £20 million. That is an outlandish amount of money for a sporting director. However, Tuner perfectly within the rights to do this. And I think given given the fact that they had to pay compensation for Ashworth to get him and wait a gardening leave period as well, and he's only been there less than two years into a four-year contract, I think they're fully within their rights to hold out here. Um, I think United are absolutely bananas to be a considering waiting two years or b 
be considering paying anything close to that amount. Now, Luke Edwards, who's a terrible set of lads, but is well connected with Newcastle, he has suggested that what he thinks will happen is that they'll agree a lower compensation fee and a shortened but not short gardening leave period. He thinks it'll be 2025 before Ashworth takes over there. Um, Moving on. Obviously, we had the news last week that Roy Hodgson uh, was taken ill, was in hospital. Tony Mowbray has had to step down temporarily as Birmingham City manager as he undergoes medical treatment for an unnamed illness. Um, He will be stepping away for a period of approximately six to eight weeks He's only been in the job a couple of months. This is not good for Birmingham, but the priority here has to be Tony Mowbray's health. And hopefully it's nothing too serious. It doesn't sound great, but hopefully we see him back in the dugout quite soon because I have a lot of time for Tony Mowbray. I like the football he plays and he, he seems like a genuinely good man. He seems like a good man. So fingers crossed he pulls through and all is well. Uh, Leah Williamson has withdrawn from the England squad with a hamstring injury. Now, she's obviously been out for an extended period of time with a torn ACL. She's back playing. She'd been called back to the England squad for the first time. But now she's had to step aside for this squad because of another injury. But hamstring injuries can often happen to players who return from uh, from knee injuries, so it's just part of the dance. Uh, we'll do the gossip. We've got three days' worth to get into, uh, so we'll do that. Chelsea are interested in Ivan Tony, Evan Ferguson, and Victor Osman. Osman is wanted by PSG. He is their first target, uh, Chelsea's first target, that is, but Chelsea seem to believe PSG could outbid them, which does seem likely. PSG are looking at Latour Martinez, Rafael Liao, and Osman to replace Kylian Mbappe. Liao is the best choice of those, uh, even though Osman is probably the best player and Latour might be the second best player. Liao fits what they need because they've got number nines. They've got Goncalo Ramos. They've got Randall Kolomouani. They don't need another number nine. They need someone to play off the left. You've got Usman Dembele off the right. Leo makes most sense. Uh, PSG are keen to fill the void left by Mbappe's departure by signing both Bruno Gomerish and Bernardo Silva. So they'll be taking a different approach, rebuilding the midfield and maybe just going with what is already a strong attack, but not necessarily an all-world attack. Look, this is a team that had Messi... Mbappe and Neymar and couldn't get the Champions League done. Uh, Liverpool are interested in signing Archie Gray with Leeds potentially having to sell the 17-year-old if they do not win promotion to the Premier League. For me, if I was advising Liverpool this upcoming summer, I would advise them to sign Archie Gray and Lamine Kamara to fill their midfield ranks, not go big on whichever high-level defensive midfielder could be available. You know, they've been linked to Gamerish. I would go Archie Gray 
and Lamine Kamara. Lamine comes in as an as a day one starter, and I think I think Archie Gray is going to be a truly special footballer. So that's what I would advise him to do. Arsenal target Pedro Neto could cost over sixty million with Wolves holding out for a club record fee for the 23-year-old who is also of interest to Liverpool and Tottenham. I would love Pedro Neto at Liverpool. That's no secret. Sao Paulo's Brazilian midfielder Pablo Maia is keen on a move to the Premier League with West Ham, Arsenal and Fulham, all viewed as potential destinations. For me, I think West Ham or Fulham makes the most sense for him at this point. I don't think he's quite ready to join Arsenal and play at the level that they're playing at, but he is a very good player. Uh, Luis Suarez has said that Inter Miami will be the last club of his career. He wants to finish off playing with Messi. That's understandable. Uh, Sunderland forward Jack Clark could leave in the summer, according to the player's agent, after the championship club rejected a bid from Lazio in January. He wants to play at the highest level. He's good enough to play at the highest level. He's given Sunderland three years now. I I think it's fair if he wants to leave. Roma want to sign Diego Llorente on a permanent deal after he impressed during his loan spell there. Juventus have met with former West Ham winger Felipe Anderson, who's out of contract in the summer. He's been really good since going back there. He was great at West Ham in spells. Just consistency was the issue. Uh, Newcastle boss Eddie Howe is concerned that Dan Ashworth could hand their transfer secrets to Manchester United if the 52-year-old Englishman makes the move to Old Trafford. I'm not sure Newcastle have transfer secrets. It's not like they're Brighton. It's not like they're Liverpool when Michael Edwards was in charge. Newcastle's transfer business thus far has been a lot of very obvious stuff. Uh, clearly, Ashworth arrived with a couple of names he'd gotten when he was at, Bre- at Brighton. Um, but I-, I don't think Newcastle have too much to worry about there. Marcus Rashford is on Paris Saint-Germain's shortlist to replace Mbappe, who intends to leave the club at the end of the season. Rashford would also fit really, really well in that left-sided role. And frankly, he, he still looks like a fellow who needs a change of scenery. Real Madrid have reserved the number 10 shirt for Mbappe should he join from PSG this summer. It makes sense. Florentino Perez has told Real Madrid players that Mbappe will be joining the club at the end of the season. I doubt he's done that. Uh, AC Milan will consider offers in excess of $85.5 million for Rafael Liao, who has also been linked to Paris Saint-Germain as Mbappe's replacement. Mo Salah has been linked with a move to Saudi Arabia. He's also been linked to PSG. If someone offers 150 million, I think Liverpool will take it. And I think Liao will be on their shortlist of players to come in. It would mean, obviously, a bit of a reshuffle because he'd play from the left. But part of me does think if you got Neto and Liao, you had Darwin as the nine, Dominic as the 10, and those two on in the wide areas or in a 4-3-3 with those two either side of Darwin, that could be pretty special. Um, But obviously, the hope is that Salah renews his contract and stays. Uh, Manchester City hope that Real Madrid's move for Mbappe will make it easier to persuade Erling Haaland 
to sign a new contract until 2029. Chelsea are willing to trigger the 111 million release clause to sign Victor Osman. Um, are they? Can they afford to? We'll see. Manchester United are interested in Bayern Munich's 18-year-old France under-21 striker, Matthias Tell. He's superbly gifted. Superbly gifted. Very, very fun player to watch. And age profile-wise would fit in with Hoysland and Garnacho, so it could make sense. Newcastle and Aston Villa are leading the race to sign Emile Smith-Rowe. Um, I'm not sure there is a race to sign him. I'm, I'm not sure Arsenal have made it in any way clear that they'd be willing to let him go. Other than, obviously, Arteta doesn't play him a whole bunch. But they still seem keen to keep him. Dan Ashworth would he, would attempt to bring in Chelsea's chief analyst, Kyle McCauley, if he moves to Old Trafford. Arsenal sends scouts to watch 19-year-old Israeli midfielder Oscar Glausch play for Red Bull Salzburg at the weekend. Manager Oliver Glasner will take his first Crystal Palace training session on Tuesday after his appointment as Roy Hodgson's successor is confirmed. Still no word on that at all from Crystal Palace. Bayer Leverkusen have been scouting Luton's 21-year-old English defender, Ted and Menji. Okay. Galatasaray are com- considering a move for Altai Beyinder, the Manchester United reserve goalkeeper who's made only one appearance since joining last summer. And West Ham are confident they can keep hold of Tim Steepten, despite interest from Liverpool. Uh, on to Monday then. Uh, France striker Kylian Mbappe has agreed a five-year deal with Real Madrid. Mbappe held talks at Manchester City the day before announcing he was leaving PSG at the end of the season. I think that would have got out through an English publication if it was true. Uh, Chelsea are monitoring Harry Kane's situation at Bayern Munich amid reports the 30-year-old striker is not completely happy. Haven't seen those reports personally. And it is Football Insider, so high probability of spoofing. Liverpool are hoping to lure both Xabi Alonso and Simon Rolfs from Bayer Leverkusen to replace Jurgen Klopp and Jörg Schmatke. Again, Football Insider, high probability of of spoofing. It's Wayne VC. It's definitely spoofing. There's no sources there at all. Tottenham are planning a summer move for Everton's 22-year-old English midfielder James Garner. I mean, if Heusberg goes, I could see him as a squad player there. Um, Former Wales manager Chris Coleman is a contender for the Republic of Ireland job after talks with Lee Carsley stalled. We'll wait and see if that's true. But given some of the names out there, I mean, it is Miguel Delaney. He's got really good connections with the FAI. It's probably true. Uh. Thomas Tuchel will not be sacked despite suffering a third defeat in nine days against Bochum on Sunday. We'll wait and see. Um, I, I doubt he has long left in that job. Barcelona president Johan Laporte, sorry, Laporta has asked for more scouting reports on Roberto De Zerbi as he considers approaching him to succeed Xavi at the end of the season. Real Madrid manager Carlo Ancelotti has spoken to Luka Modric his contract is out in the summer about his lack of playing time this season. Look, Real are loaded in midfield. So unfortunately, Modric, who has declined significantly, is just the one getting squeezed. 
Uh, Birmingham City's 33-year-old Republic of Ireland defender Kevin Long is close to completing a move to MLS side Toronto FC. So there we go. That's all the gossip. That's all I have for today, folks. Thank you, as always, for listening. I hope you enjoyed the Steve Bruce interview. We'll see you tomorrow. Take care. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.